You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. Amen, amen. Man, that song gets me every time. Oh, yeah, you don't want me to sing. Um, good morning, North Valley. I'm Randy. I'm one of the elders here on the governing board at the church. Good to be with you. We're going to be continuing on now with part two of this series. It's all about grace. And today we're going to talk about grace forgives. Uh, grace forgives. Uh, before we get started, I got to tell you this story. There's this woman, and um, she bought a parrot for a pet. Any bird lovers in the house? Any parrot owners? We did have one for service. Okay. She bought a parrot for a pet, and all the parrot did, though, was treat her bad. I mean, it insulted her. It kept pecking her in her arms. I mean, it would just peck her arms. And one day she got fed up with this parrot and she was just done with it, insulting her. And she picked it up and he's yelling at her, you're ugly, you're ugly. I can't stand you, I can't stand you. Of course, parrots repeat what they hear. So I don't, I don't know where he heard, heard all that. But, and he's, she's, he's just carrying on and carrying on. And finally, she just opened her freezer door one day and she threw the parrot in there and shut the freezer door. And you can hear the parrot inside the freezer still say, you're ugly, I can't stand you, for about five more seconds. And then all of a sudden it's dead quiet. And she's like, oh no, I killed my parrot. So she opens the freezer door, parrot comes out and boy, the parrot's just like, I am so sorry. I apologize for my bad behavior. I'll be a good obedient parrot from now on. You know, would you please forgive me? And she says, okay, yeah, I forgive you. Apology accepted you're forgiven. And the parrot says, thank you. And then the parrot said, but could I ask you something? She said, yeah. And the parrot looked back into the freezer and said, what'd the chicken do? (laughs) So we're going to talk about forgiveness today. So turn with me in in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, or go on your YouVersion Bible app, or whatever Bible app you have on your mobile device right now. Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to be in the first four verses and then also verse 32. So, so we're continuing in this series about grace, and so today's part two. If you missed part one last Sunday, uh, go on the podcast and get that. When uh, Pastor Ryan talked about grace welcomes, um, he talked about as grace flows to you, let it flow through you, and how as believers we need to be a, a welcoming people, uh, welcoming people. Uh, grace welcomes, welcoming others lightens their load, it, it builds them up. Great teaching. Um, today, part two, grace forgives. And so right up front, our take-home truth for today is this, forgiven people forgive people. Forgiven people forgive people. That's the truth. You see, when we experience God's amazing grace, the scripture says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us for the forgiveness of our sin. He he paid that debt, that penalty that we could not pay. He he poured out his precious blood on the cross to to save us, to, to reconcile us back to God, to give us eternal life. And because of that, because of that great forgiveness we've, we've, we've been given, we are to forgive others. We are to forgive others. Hip-hop artist Lecrae says, guilt says you failed. Shame says you're a failure. But grace says your failures are forgiven. 
And I love what uh, Andrew Wilson says. He's a pastor and author. He says, grace, when worked out in our finances, it looks like generosity. When it's worked out in our homes, it looks like hospitality. And when grace is worked out in our relationships, it's called forgiveness. And so we're in Ephesians chapter four, starting in verse one. And let me set this up for you. So Apostle Paul's writing this letter to the church in Ephesus. And so it's called Ephesians. It's a church he had started. Now Paul's in prison. He's in Rome. In prison, he's writing a letter back to the church, back to that body of believers to encourage them and to remind them of those things that he taught them. Um, and, and he's stressing here in Ephesians chapter four, or actually in the letter of Ephesians, those first three chapters about the, the importance of our calling and how unity in the body of Christ is so important. And we have this high calling and this, this privilege as believers, as a local group, we should settle for nothing less than these things like kindness and, and being tenderhearted or compassionate and forgiving one another. And so in those, those first three chapters of Ephesians, he's, he gives all of this, this rich doctrine. And so now he, he moves from the doctrinal to the practical, from, from principle or theory, so to speak, to practice how this should look and play out in our daily lives. So follow along with me. Ephesians chapter four, starting in verse one. I'm actually gonna read one through seven, and then I'm gonna skip down to 32. I therefore, Paul says, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With, he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, he says in verse five, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who was over all and through all and in all. In verse seven, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then skip down with me to verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And so he's saying here, being done with all the malicious traits that he mentions there earlier in those prior verses that you can, you can read at home, the Christian, he says, the believer, Paul says, their life will display kindness. It will display tenderheartedness. It will display forgiveness. He says, be kind to one another. That word be there is really become in other words, Paul realizes that the readers then and us today, we've not yet attained that, that full measure of, protect, of, of perfection found in Christ that he mentions in verse 13. But he says, become a person of kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness. He says to be kind is to show a sweet and generous nature. Dina tells me all the time, I'm sweet. Okay, if you have to say... Uh, Different message. Okay. To be tenderhearted. In other words, your Bible there might say to be compassionate. To be tenderhearted. And then he says forgiving one another. In the original language, that word there for forgiving is charizomai. It, it means to, to grant forgiveness freely, to pardon, to rescue, to deliver, to give graciously, to give freely, to bestow, 
to graciously restore one to another. And so what Paul's telling us here is that mutual forgiveness in our relationships is the true mark of true Christian fellowship. There's a give and receive in this matter. And he, and he sets forth here the greatest, most possible motive is that Christians are to forgive because we've already been forgiven by God in Christ. When Jesus became the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world on the cross that we read about in 1 John 2. And he says, as, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Meaning our forgiveness as others is to be like God's forgiveness of us. It must flow from an unconditional, an ungrudging love. Dina reminded me this week that if someone's on your nerves, they can't be on your heart. Tweet that. I mean, Jesus himself said in John 13, uh, a new commandment I give to you, that if you love, you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Verse 35 there in John 13, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Out of that kind of love comes this mutual forgiveness because forgiven people forgive people. Forgiven people forgive people. So let's start this morning with what forgiveness is not. Before we talk about what forgiveness is, let's talk about what forgiveness is not. And if you're following along in your notes, which you can on the printed program or you can from the Version app, if you click on event and find this morning's service, you can take notes right there. Here's what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not circumventing God's justice. It's not. God will execute justice, but it's in his time and in his way. Max Lucado says, forgiveness doesn't diminish justice. It just entrusts it to God. Let God take care of that. Forgiveness is not letting the guilty off the hook. It's not. It's not letting them off the hook. It's taking them from your hook to God's hook. Forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. It takes two for reconciliation, but it only takes one to forgive. It is not the same as reconciliation. Forgiveness is not being a weak martyr. It's not being weak. It's being strong enough to be Christ-like being strong enough to be like Jesus. Forgiveness is not stuffing your anger. Oh, Randy, don't tell me that. It's not stuffing your anger. It's resolving your anger by releasing the offense to God. Forgiveness is not a natural response. Anybody sitting in here knows that. It's not. It's a supernatural response, one empowered by God through the Holy Spirit in our lives. Forgiveness is not denying the hurt. It's not denying the hurt. It is feeling the hurt full on, but then releasing the hurt. We'll talk a little bit more of that in a second. Forgiveness is not being a doormat. If forgiving someone makes you a doormat, then Jesus was the biggest doormat of all. And that ain't true. Forgiveness is not conditional. It's unconditional. It's a mandate from God for everyone. 
Oh, here's a biggie. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Who's heard forgive and forget? That is not in the Bible anywhere. That's a lie. Forgive to forgive, you must remember. But let me clarify that. Forgive and forget's a lie. It is impossible to completely forget the sins that have been committed against us. You can't just selectively delete a memory out of your memory, oftentimes. And so you say, what the Bible's ready, though, the Bible says that God forgives and forgets, and he does, right? We read in in Isaiah 43, he says, I blot out your transgressions. He says, I remember your sins no more. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 talks about how Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was a once and for all sacrifice. It was done. God, no, does not remember our sins, but God is not forgetful, right? God's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows everything and forgets nothing, but he can choose to not remember. Rather than treating us as our sins deserve, God removes our sins from us, the Bible says, as far as the East is from the West. When we're saved, our sins are completely forgiven, right? Romans 8 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Sin has no say-so in our standing with God. We're fully accepted. He declares us righteous in the scriptures. But even as Christians, we sin, and we know that that God's faithful, though, and just to forgive us our sins, 1 John 1, 9. God cleanses us, though, and then he moves on. He doesn't hold our sin against us. He doesn't hold it over us. Instead, he frees us from the slavery of sin, frees us to that abundant life that Jesus promised us. Knowing that complete forgiveness of God we have in Christ, that's what allows us us to press on. Allows us us, right? In Philippians 3, press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. But in our human relationships, we too, we can either choose to remember the offense, we can hold it over that person till Jesus comes back, that sin that's been committed against us, or we can choose to not remember. To forgive someone, we put painful memories out of our minds. We don't actually forget the sin, but we choose to overlook it, to get past it, to no longer be hurt by it, to no longer get stung by it. Forgiveness frees us from dwelling on past offenses and and holding grudges, but it doesn't wipe out our memory. We forgive and we remember, but we remember so that we can set healthy boundaries, godly boundaries in our relationships and and not continue to be victimized. There's this old Jewish couple, Saul and and Ethel Rosenberg. And once upon a time in their marriage, Saul did something really stupid. And so Ethel, his wife, she chewed him out for it. He apologized. They made up. He asked for forgiveness. She granted forgiveness. But from time to time, she'd keep bringing it up. And so one day Saul's like, honey, why do you keep bringing this up? I thought your policy was forgive and forget. And she says, well, it is. I just don't want you to forget that I have forgiven and forgotten. Right? Yeah, no, that ain't right. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Lastly, here's the other thing forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It's a choice. It's an act of the will. It's a choice. Sometimes you don't feel like it, but we're commanded to. That's what, that's what forgiveness is not. Here's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is dismissing a debt. 
Forgiveness is dismissing your demand that others owe you something, especially when they fail to meet your expectations or they, or they fail to keep a promise or they, they fail to treat you justly. Forgiveness is dismissing, canceling, or setting someone free from the consequence of falling short of God's standard. Forgiveness is extended even if it's never, ever earned. You're like, whoa, Randy, no. But that's what it is. That's a big one. Forgiveness is extended regardless of the lack of repentance. Even if they don't own it, even if they don't repent, even if they don't apologize. Forgiveness is releasing your resentment toward your offender. It's releasing your resentment, releasing your right. It's releasing your right to hear I'm sorry. It's releasing your right to be bitter. It's releasing your right to get even. Someone once said, that's how you know you've forgiven somebody because you have an opportunity to get even and you don't. But you pray for, their, for them instead. Pray, P-R-A-Y. You're tracking with me, okay. Forgiveness is releasing your rights regarding the offense, releasing your right to dwell on the offense, releasing your right to, to hold on to the offense, releasing your right to, to keep bringing up the offense. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is reflecting on the character of God. Just as God is willing to, to forgive us, we're called to forgive others. To forgive is to, to extend mercy and grace, is to give that gift of grace, to set the offender free. Paul, the Apostle Paul is the also when he wrote the letter to the church in Colossae. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, he says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Christian author and theologian Louis Smeedy said this, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. Forgiveness is to set a prisoner free and discover the prisoner was you because forgiven people forgive people. Unforgiveness has a very high cost. Unforgiveness robs us of God's forgiveness. Unforgiveness allows a root of bitterness to grow. Unforgiveness opens the door to Satan in our lives. Read about that in 2 Corinthians. Unforgiveness causes us to walk in darkness in 1 John. Unforgiveness is of the devil. James 3. Unforgiveness reflects a godless heart. Unforgiveness makes us captive to sin. Unforgiveness grieves the Spirit of God. I don't know who said this, but refusing to forgive someone is like drinking poison and waiting for them to die. Some of you have heard that. It's true. It's not in Proverbs, but it's true. 
Refusing to forgive someone is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. So you might be saying, but Randy, how can I forgive someone who they haven't said they're sorry? They haven't owned what they did to me. They haven't repented. They haven't apologized. That's hard. It's hard enough to forgive when they are repentant and we've been hurt. But see, it's all about grace. Grace forgives. Forgiveness is not based on what the offender does or deserves. It's a rather, it's a gift of grace, giving a gift that's not deserved. When Jesus was hanging on the cross and he looked down at the, at the, at the, at the people that whipped him and, 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 and crucified him and hung him on the cross, he prays a prayer in Luke 23, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They didn't repent. Forgiven people forgive people. Why? Well, the straight up answer is because God said so. Right? With our kids, parents. Because I said so. But, but, but why does God say so? He says so because we need it. They need it. It's been said that the man who refuses to forgive destroys the very bridge over which he himself must cross. Here's God's heart on forgiveness. God's heart on forgiveness is he want he, that we forgive each other, which we've read about here in Ephesians 4. God wants us to forgive others because he forgives us, like we read about in Colossians 3. God wants us to see unforgiveness as sin. God wants us to get rid of unforgiveness before it makes us bitter. He wants us to do our part to live at peace with everyone. In Romans 12, he wants us to overcome evil with good in Romans 12, 21. He wants us to be free to worship him in honesty and in truth in Matthew 5, because forgiven people forgive people. Now you notice in the word forgiveness or the word forgive, there's a little word in there, give. When we choose to forgive, we give someone a gift, the gift of freedom from having to pay the penalty for what they did to us, the gift of dismissing a debt. And then we give ourselves a gift back, the gift of freedom, the gift of not living a, 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 a grudge-free grudge living, not living with grudges. That's true freedom. And I understand it's hard. Some of us are forgivers and some of us, it's not so easy. When we've been hurt and hurt bad, and so sometimes we have to go through these stages of forgiveness, like number one, stage one, if you're following along in your notes, face the offense. Face it. Don't minimize the offense. Don't excuse offensive behavior. Quit making excuses for people. Put it out there. Identify it. This is what happened. This is what you did. Phase two is feel the offense. Feel it. Don't stuff those emotions. Feel it. Don't deny your pain. Don't, don't carry that false guilt for hating what happened. God hates sin, and we can too. So face it. Feel it. And phase three, forgive your offender. Forgive them. Alexander Pope said, to err is human, to forgive divine. Who's heard that? Right? That ain't in scripture either. 
To forgive is human, I mean, to, to err is human, to forgive divine. There's truth in that. But our human reality oftentimes says what? To err is human and to blame it on someone else is even more human. Right? It's so easy to blame and to forgive, but we're called by God to forgive. And when we do genuine forgiveness, it draws us into the heart of God. It makes us more like Jesus. So face the offense, feel the offense, forgive your offender. And number four, phase four, find oneness with a little caveat there, if appropriate. Again, reconciliation takes two, but forgiveness only takes one. Find oneness, if appropriate. Evaluate the relationship. Open your heart. Share your pain. Expect the offender to be truthful. Set appropriate boundaries. Take time. Pray through it. Yield your heart to starting over. Relationships filled with resentment perish, but relationships filled with forgiveness prevail. Now, I may have shared this story before, but there's a story that actually happened here in Arizona where there's a guy and he's a cyclist and he likes to get on his bike and just ride for miles and miles and miles. And he has a really huge dog that he takes with him and he's got the dog on the chain and he's riding his bike and the dog's running beside him. And uh, it, it was, maybe it was in the, the summer and it was really hot. And so he stopped at like a QT or a gas station and he to go inside and get some more water and to go to the bathroom. And so he chains his, there's this bench outside in front and he chains his dog to this bench while he's waiting inside. And uh, so he goes inside and uh, he gets water and whatever. Well, while he's inside the, 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 the gas station, the big dog sees another dog and takes off after it. And that dog takes off running and he, he, he rips, literally rips the bench right out of the cement and he's dragging this bench all across the QT, takes out one of the, the gas pumps, all kinds of damage. And that's what happens when we don't forgive. We drag around this bench and we have all these people on our bench I can't forgive him. You don't know how bad he hurt me. No, I I can't forgive her. It's over. Some of you, you've got God on the bench. You are mad at God. And we're dragging this bench of unforgiveness all throughout our lives. Some, Some for years and years and years. And it's causing all this collateral damage in our other relationships. It's time to start forgiving people. Get them off the bench. And then get rid of the chain and then get rid of the bench. And choose to be a forgiver and not a grudge holder. Like what happened in this marriage. David and Rima, come on up. You're going to hear a story about how forgiveness saved a marriage. Come on up, guys. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, This has been a real challenge for us this last uh, week, 10 days. Uh, Very emotional, draining. Um, 
But we know it's what the Lord has asked us to do, is to share our testimony, to share our story. Um, but before we get started, I'd like to have, um, share a little background. Um, Dave and I, David and I will have been married 21 years this November. <clears throat> I've had two previous marriages that have both ended in divorce, and I do have two beautiful daughters, Alyssa and Kelsey, from my second marriage. I accepted Christ 21 years ago at a Calvary Chapel in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, in 1996, I was divorced and became a single dad to my children, Catherine and Matthew, and we moved from Dallas uh, to Albuquerque, where I met Rima. Uh, in March of that year, I accepted Christ as my, as my Savior. What we're about to share happened almost exactly two years ago. It's a very hard and a personal event to share, but our prayer is that it might give hope to others going through a difficult time in their marriage. It started on a Friday night. We were driving to Norterra to meet our children for the Halloween event. I noticed that David's hands were just clutched on the steering wheel, and he had been slurring his words. I actually thought maybe he was having a stroke or something medical. Once we arrived, I asked him if everything was okay, and he abruptly said yes. I didn't feel like anything was okay. I asked again a little more firmly, and his response was, will you still love me? My heart began to pound. I had no idea what he was about to share with me. He confessed to me that he had been a closet alcoholic for the last seven years. I remember just shaking and sobbing. How could you do this to our marriage, to our family? I was in shock. I felt our marriage had been a lie for all of those years. During the previous 19 years of our marriage, we never had any alcohol in our home, and David never even drank around me or had seemed to have any interest in it. My facade had broken. I couldn't hide it any longer. Rima is the love of my life, and I crushed her. Up to this point, we had a good marriage, uh, a nice home where we raised our four children. Uh, we raised them through high school, college, and into marriage, and we have three beautiful grandchildren. I had a great job. I moved up the corporate ladder. I traveled. I worked with very prestigious companies. I was even an elder in our church. I seemed to have it all together, but this facade, I was but behind this facade, I was walking in the darkness. Then the facade shattered, and it delivered a crushing blow. After he confessed how he was able to keep his drinking a secret for all those years and all the lies he had to tell me to keep it secret, I felt so betrayed. I didn't think I'd ever be able to trust him again. The lies actually hurt more than the addiction. I became so angry with him. I completely withdrew from him. I complete, couldn't speak to him or even look at him. All I could see was the lies he told me. I took my wedding ring off because I knew that would hurt him. And I brought up the D word, which I had never used with him before. I knew deep down by taking myself away from him that it would cause him pain, and that's what I wanted. I wanted for him to feel the same pain that I was feeling, an eye for an eye. How did we get here? How did I get to this point? It was a slow fade. The lines in the Casting Crown song, Slow Fade, still ring in my ears today. It's a slow fade when black and white are turned to gray, when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. I had faded from the walking in the light to hiding in the darkness. 
The next day, I confided in a longtime friend. I shared with her everything that had happened, and she was in shock as well as she had known David for many years. She told me about a very difficult time in her marriage and how, with God, they were able to save their marriage. This gave me my first glimpse of hope. She told me I needed to ask him, though, if there was anything else he might be holding back from me. At this time, I had become very weak, and I didn't know if I had the strength to hear if there was something else he might be keeping from me. As soon as I got home, I asked him a number of questions, and he now confessed to abusing pornography. My heart was crushed. My anger towards him got worse. I felt like I didn't know him at all at this point, and I was ready to leave him. The love of my life, who I vowed to love and protect, was being crushed by my lies, my deceit, my choices. I had rationalized my behavior as protecting Rima. I grew, I knew that drinking was a trigger for her. It reminded her of her previous marriages. I abused pornography to meet my needs. I didn't want to be rejected or cause any tension. I was protecting our marriage. I had rationalized it all, which is when Rima said, You're not protecting me. You're protecting yourself, your image, and your ego. It is at that moment when the Lord opened my eyes. He opened my eyes to my deeper sin, my pride. Pride goes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. This verse from Proverbs is so true. I knew the Lord could not take these, take these circumstances and these consequences from me, but I prayed that he'd help me through them. After confessing everything to Rima, I knew I had to confess to my children. I knew the consequences could include losing them as well. So I gathered them together and confessed to them and explained the slow fade and how I had hidden in the shadows to protect my image and rationalized it all in my mind. I apologized profusely for hurting them, for hurting their mother, and I asked for their forgiveness. And they prayed for me and prayed with me. After David had talked with our children, two of our daughters came over to talk with me. They were both very upset with me that I had so quickly taken off my wedding ring and was even thinking divorce. They were both from my second marriage, which had already ended in divorce, and David had adopted them after their father died, and they loved David and wanted us to stay together. Our oldest daughter shared with me the importance of forgiving, just as Christ forgave me. She reminded me of the verse in Ephesians, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave us. She also shared with me verses regarding anger. One in Romans 12 really spoke to me. Repay no one evil for evil, if, if possibly, live peaceably with all. There was a twinge that hit me after reading this. Repay no one evil for evil. This is exactly what I was doing. I wanted David to hurt, to hurt as much as I hurt. After much crying and praying, I was still feeling shaken by what David had done and wasn't able to forgive. Rima told me through her hurt that I needed help. I needed serious counseling and that I may need to get out. I got on my face before my Savior. I prayed for his mercy. I prayed for his grace. But most of all, I prayed for his direction. I knew that it was only going to be through him that our marriage could be saved. During that same weekend, my son-in-law talked with me 
And all I can remember him saying to me is, do you love him? I had been so angry with David, wanting him to feel pain, I realized I hadn't stopped to think about anything else. I was living in my anger and my hurt. But once he said this to me, I remember thinking, I do love him. I do want our marriage. That night was when God softened my heart towards David. He revealed my own sin as well. I was filled with anger, vengeance, and bitterness. Ephesians 4 tells us, Let all bitterness, wrath, and anger be put away from you. I was clearly seeing that my sin wasn't any better than David's. That evening, God God impressed on my heart to make the choice to forgive. I loved him. I wanted to work on our marriage, and I wanted to be by his side. Forgiveness hasn't always come easy to me. It was only by God's grace that I was able to forgive him. Rima's forgiveness was an answer to prayer. Christ shined through Rima, the love of my life. But healing after this level of trauma doesn't happen in a day. It's a process. Through Christ, our marriage got a second chance. We've been, we've been led to seek godly counsel, pray together, communicate frequently and honestly, share our experience with others, study God's word, and most importantly, we put God back at the head of our marriage. During this crisis, longtime friends, um, Wes and Nancy Austin, invited us to North Valley. We quickly got connected, began serving together, and joined a neighborhood group, all of which has helped strengthen our marriage. It was Wes, um, who God placed in our lives many years ago, who took me under his wing, gave me good godly counsel, encouragement, and demonstrated godly love. It was Nancy who shared her husband with me nearly every day for several weeks. Together, they gave Rima and I hope for recovery and for rebuilding of trust. You may never forget, but you can choose to forgive. You can choose to love just as Christ first loved and forgave us. Marriage is a journey with many trials along the way. If you stay connected to each other and, most importantly, to God, he will protect your marriage help you persevere and thrive. Thank you. So Rima was dragging her bench around, and her husband was on it. Then she figured out that she was probably on his bench too. So pray with me. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I want you to think about somebody. Ask God to bring to your heart and mind right now that person who you need to forgive. You're dragging your bench of unforgiveness around. They're sitting on it. There may be others on it. Maybe you're sitting on someone else's bench. And you could pray in your heart right now, in your heart, in quietly in your heart, in your mind, a prayer like this, Lord Jesus, thank you for caring about how much my heart has been hurt. You know the pain I have felt because of, say their name. 
right now, Lord, I release all of that pain to you and into your hands. Thank you, Lord, for dying on the cross for me and extending your forgiveness to me. As an act of my will, God, I choose to forgive, fill in the blank. Right now, I move them off of my bench of unforgiveness and into your hands. I refuse all thoughts of revenge. I trust that in your time and in your way, you will deal with fill in the blank as you see fit. And Lord, thank you for giving me your power to forgive so that I can be set free. In your holy name I pray. Amen. Final thoughts. Forgiving is never just a one-time thing. It is over and over and over in our lives. And so I just want to leave you with this little acronym, FORGIVE, F-O-R-G-I-V-E. Forbid recurring thoughts of the wrongs to enter your mind. Overcome the temptation to bring up the matter again. R, repeat scripture in your mind. Memorize it. G, give the situation to God. Here's the hard one. I, intercede on behalf of your offender. V, value what you can receive. Freedom. And E, extend God's grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Because forgiven people forgive. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, give online today at northvalleychurch.org.